All right, and we are go. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is that time of the week in which I rant to you the ravings and mad drawings of a young old man. This is the Virginia Company Podcast, and I am your host, John Smith. How are you? Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I can tell you what, this is the special sickly podcast, and the reason is because I'm being just embroiled in a brutal and unending war with my own body, my flesh and blood turning against me due to a slight sinus infection. Now, unfortunately for me, this means that as I come to you full of energy and manic life, unable to do anything but voice my endless thoughts, I struggle constantly. So you may hear me cough, sneeze, sniffle, but nonetheless, I come before you, all two of you, (laughs) according to last week anyway, to offer my humble commentary on life day to day, now and forever and always. Just to prove my point, the Sickly Podcast will include all my cough, sneezes, and uh, various sounds, maybe even a passing of gas or two, ho ho, because we aren't professionals here, and it's just me ranting in a room, so hopefully you guys enjoy this. Now, I know usually it starts out with a cigar review, and this week is a little different. The cigar I would be talking about is more like a brand, and it's called La Fleur Dominica, and it was my first cigar. The first cigar I ever tried, and I got it from this awesome shop called Old Town Tobacconist in Old Town Fredericksburg. It's right there, I believe, on Princess Anne Street. It's a fine establishment, a fine establishment. The people there are amazing, excellent help. They'll hook you up with everything you need if you're a first-time cigar smoker or pipe smoker. Uh, The gentleman... It's a family-owned business. The gentleman that owns it is an uh, ex-police officer, and he's just a wonderful dude, so give it up to him. (laughs) Um, Old Town Tobacconist. You guys should really check it out. They helped me out when I got my first humidor. They taught me how to maintain it. They got me my first packs. In fact, on this desk where I sit, my humidor sits at exactly 70 70 (laughs) degrees of humidity, and it's beautiful, and here I am fondling through my cigars. My, my many, many cigars, and, uh, you know, it, it's beautiful. I got my first box to match this first humidor, and uh, I have not been disappointed. I can tell you that right now, not in the least, because this sweet and inspiring humidor was gotten to me, actually, by Total Wine. But it was helped prepared by Old Town Tobacconist, filled with cigars from both establishments. And while I would say Total Wine has a better aromatic humidor, uh, Old Town Tobacconist has a sort of homey, walk-in, feel-like-you're-one-of-the-guys feel that I can't quite escape. Though there's also an excellent place, I believe, in Spotsylvania called The Lounge, which is run by veterans and uh, an ex-veteran and, you know, I mean, not an ex-veteran, but (laughs) ex-military veteran. He's excellent. Uh, I believe he was a Marine, and um, he was very kind, helping me start out with my cigars and picking out my lighters. So those are the three places I most frequent. You might even see me there if you ever choose to visit. But uh, La Fleur Dominica. So if we're going back here, I was mm, 20, 19 or 20, when I first decided to smoke. And um, I was very nervous about it because, you know, I had had family that have smoked uh, tobacco products for years. Namely cigarettes, those most... Uh, malevolent and often hated sticks of death that constantly and consistently are conflated for all tobacco products. And uh, it made me nervous, but I wasn't really nervous about my health, seeing as how I'm a 
300 pound man. It was more about the uh, uh, moral appearance and whether or not I'd enjoy it. But I'd always loved cigars because I, you know, saw men like Winston Churchill and, you know, indeed even uh, Joseph Stalin and Western heroes and <laughs> all sorts of powerful men and heroes uh, smoking. And I wanted to be like them. And uh, I wondered why these men would enjoy such a thing. I mean, if tobacco really tastes horrible, as my parents and the school system said, and if it truly was such a bad thing, why would all these great men um, smoke it and use it? And by the way, why would Virginia make its name selling it? You know, I am a Virginian after all. So I tried it uh, on a whim and uh, me and my friend Cole were there. And Cole's a great guy. You, you know, you, you might actually hear him on the podcast at some point. He's an awesome dude. He's my complete opposite. He's not a traditionalist like me. He's an anarchist. Um, but in any case, he, he he's wonderful. And he encouraged me, being the, the shoulder devil he is, to get one. And we tried it. And uh, it was a dark La Fleur Dominica with notes of pepper, which is what I remember instantly. It was hot, heavy, peppery smoke. Um, and I enjoyed it. Walked down the street with it. Smoked it. And... Um, it was it was love at first taste. Um, now I will say now that I'm you know been smoking for a while, I enjoy a creamier, sweeter smoke, more aromatic flavors. But at the time, the Lafleur was my go-to, and it's my go-to because it's strong um, and empowering. And so if I want to smoke something that makes me feel strong and conflict-oriented, I smoke the Lafleur, and it takes me back to a better time. You know when I was younger and a little less, uh, a little, <laughs> a little less you know, jaded and a little more, um, a little more serious about things, you know, uh, I wanted to be a real man and smoke a heavy dark cigar because that's, that's what I enjoyed. But now I, I generally use cigars as a means of relaxing, not to show off. So I simply, uh, smoke once a week. And this week, uh, I wanted to talk about that brand because it's just close to my heart. So there's my, there's my story. There's one of my friends and, uh, there are a few awesome places. Old Town Tobacconist is where I got my first cigar. The gentleman there at that time, I'm not going to tell you his name, but he was he was awesome. Um, and the family has always been nice to me. And, you know, when I was meeting with young men's group, um, with a young men's group, uh, they always let us get there and uh, smoke beforehand on Monday nights, which I'm eternally grateful. Um, it, it was truly a great experience for me. And it actually helped uh, me introduce myself to some of my other friends. Speaking of friends, there is uh, a new podcast or stream, I guess it's out, called Boneheads. <laughs> um, they're wonderful. I actually know the two gentlemen involved, in the, and they're pretty cool. Uh, I believe one of them goes by the name of Jojo. He's on Instagram now. Look him up. Um, but th they're ridiculous. They're funny. Um, I don't know if they'll be clean content, but... I would definitely check it out for hilarity and hijinks. Uh, they're two ridiculous dudes, and they're two great friends, and I just I just love them um, to death in person. Uh, I hope they get to capture some of their hijinks and ridiculousness on, on screen <laughs> for your enjoyment. No, their uh, format should be a little different than mine, obviously, because I, uh, I am, you know, kind of a long-winded ranter. Um, these gentlemen are more like video games and streaming and ridiculousness and... Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what they're going to be putting out as far as content goes, but I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be hilarious, um, regardless of what you think, uh, and, and they're pretty cool guys. In any case, um, I just wanted to throw them out there and shame, uh, shamelessly shill them. 
Now, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this first segment is over. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you can make it through that, you can make it through the rest of the podcast because we're going to talk about some more interesting stuff, including the special guest, which unfortunately had to be uh, canceled um, or moved, rather. Not canceled, but moved to a different time due to our different schedules and working spaces. Um, But the drone pilot, uh, Doug Black, will be coming on. He's... Truly an interesting fellow. Um, he, he's a man of the leaf. I met him in the... T- Actually, I met him in Old Town. Um, he smokes a pipe. He's a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. He owns his own business. He's a really cool guy. And I can't wait to uh, have him come on and advertise his drone piloting business. Um, you know, he does weddings and stuff like that. So as soon as we can get him on, we will. But uh, I'll have to skip through. Besides, this special edition of the Sickly podcast can't go without it's a few honorable mentions a shameless shilling and the uh, beginning of the cigar review so just stick with me and we'll be on our merry way all right and as we speak i am too sick to go to work tomorrow that's unfortunate my job sucks um (laughs) right now but only because i'm too sick uh, to go to work it's actually a great job i enjoy it though i won't tell you where for fear of doxing however it's pretty good company and it's a local one and you know i'm having fun with it now i thought tonight i'd talk a little bit about my personal views uh on everything as i always do and the truth is as i gets later into the night I think right now it's 9 o'clock. As it gets later into the night, my voice is starting to leave me. And so this podcast might be a little shorter than last week's, though the two of you watching uh, probably won't mind. I mean, I assume if you're watching, you, uh, you're you here for me. So, And I expect your loyalty and patronage. <laughs> um, what would I like to speak of? I had a prepared list today. I have a script and everything, but... I kind of like these long-form, unadulterated, unfiltered rants. Which kind of brings me to a subject of public speaking. Now, you'll notice I use a lot of ums and errs and uh, the gee whenever I'm looking for a word. This is often to avoid awkward silence. But I feel like in the format of a conversation, generally speaking... I'm much more effective, much more eloquent, much more able to express myself and my point. It's actually more difficult speaking uninterrupted in a chain of sentences than it is to have a conversation. And I wonder why that is. It might be my own ego, the desire that someone is listening to me. The knowledge that someone is listening to me, pushing me to be more effective. And indeed, I should probably have this attitude with you, the listener. But it feels separate when I'm here at my desk with my humidor, next to my candles and my lamp, my posters, my trophies, my books, with a cigar in my hand. It feels less personal, it feels more distant. You probably hear in the background my family speaking and talking and working and doing what they will. It makes me think. It makes me wonder. 
How effective really am I as a speaker? What makes me a man different than any other? You know, if 100,000 people listen to this podcast, I make $2,000. If just 100,000 listen to this podcast, I get $2,000. It's an unrealistic dream, but one I'd love to have where I could talk for hours for fun. I've always considered speaking the most fun thing in the world. I like talking, I like exchanging ideas, I like expressing my point of view. That's why I started this podcast. I'm shameless, bold, unapologetic, generally speaking arrogant, at times overly confident in my own abilities. My intelligence is average, Um, some would even say below average. My reliance on a verbose manner of speaking and long pauses probably gives away the fact that I'm not always as comfortable as I think I would be. It takes me time to think of things. It takes me moments to breathe, to put things in perspective. And I wonder why. Why does it take me so much time to think by myself instead of bouncing things off another human being? I promise you in person... I'm a little bit more confident, a little bit more energetic. I feel things deeper. I move more. My hands are shifting. But here, I sit quietly with my arms folded against this table, smelling my candles and incense, looking at my humidor, my posters of old, feeling the heat from my lamp beam down on me. And I feel isolated and alone. And that's good. It's good because it makes me self-reflective, but, well, unfortunately, it also makes me less confident. I feel like, generally speaking, my personality is conflict-oriented. What I mean by that is, it's designed to interact and resist other people. I, as a person, enjoy argument and debate. I like opinionated people that disagree with me, and I like putting my own abilities against theirs. I'm competitive. I enjoy working a room, talking to a crowd, making friends, and enemies. Both are entertaining to me. The amount of emotional entertainment I can have simply from interacting with new people is astounding. Now, it might not surprise you to play video games or that I enjoy reading. I enjoy these things. I enjoy... Practicing my instrument, I enjoy speaking most of all, though. I enjoy public dialogue and discourse. Talking to people, being an extrovert. It's my place of comfort, socially speaking. And I think that's why I really enjoy this podcast and find it awkward at the same time. Because while I enjoy ranting to you, and I enjoy speaking to you, and I enjoy yelling about whatever I'm thinking about, it feels less real. It feels artificial. It feels forced. I'm trying desperately for that not to be the case. And you'll be able to tell a difference. When I'm feeling a mood, when I'm entertained and happy, I'm more apt to make jokes. I'm more likely to put myself out there a little more, take bigger risks. When I'm particularly emotional, you'll hear anger, bitterness, resentment, mirth, joy, fear, even at times a simple anxiety. But times like this where I'm self-reflective, I'm calm and 
speak in long, drawn-out way, with long pauses in between. It makes me think. It makes me focus. That's another thing. It's like thinking. When you think, what do you think about? The things I think about most are probably my relation to the world around me. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? These give me endless anxiety. Endless anxiety. And I think that's what every man wants to know is where am I going in relation to everyone else? I think I'm different though in that I think of myself in relation to the world whereas most people think of the world in relation to themselves. And there is a difference. The difference between looking at the world in relation <laughs> to yourself is that everything is defined from your position and your perspective and what you can see. But I believe that I consider myself from what others look at me as. If that makes sense. And I hope it does. But I feel as though I'm more invested in my environment than myself. I don't feel pride for its own sake. I feel pride when the world responds to it. My sense of ego is validated when people listen to me, when you guys listen to this podcast, when I get a like on social media, when I make a friend, when I get a kiss of affection, when I buy something. I am validated by the interactions I have with the world around me. Or rather, what the world does with my presence. Not necessarily what my presence does to the world. It's strange, but... If I worked in such a way that there was no resistance, if I lived in a world without resistance, without strife, without conflict, without me pushing or having to push against anything, I feel like I'd be rather depressed. This is one of the things that scares me a lot is silence. I hate silence. I have a deep abiding hatred of it. Even at night, I listen to classical music or jazz. It helps me sleep. Silence makes me uncomfortable. It makes my mind wander into deep layers of self-reflection. Even during the day, I tend to listen to the crickets. When I smoke my cigar, I enjoy listening to the afternoon sounds. When I read, I enjoy having music on. Some of the only times I enjoy silence are when I can talk to myself. I only appreciate silence when I record this podcast. Otherwise, it's useless to me. Silence means nothing's happening. It means nothing is coming and nothing is going. It's static. It's uncomfortable. And it's heavier than the loudest noise. Silence makes its presence known more than the murmuring of a thousand voices. Silence is utterly unignorable. Silence is far more powerful in some respects than the shouts of thousands of soldiers. I hate silence. I have a major amount of contempt for those who keep silence, for those who can't express themselves, for those who refuse to offer an opinion or take a side. Generally speaking, I deal in black and whites. Black and whites are simple, straight to the point. They show conviction. Those who deal in shades of gray or refuse to see colors at all, well, for them, I have nothing but contempt. It's not that I'm closed-minded, they're just... I feel like they're just closed-minded. I feel like those who cannot see colors 
generally speaking, are just too lazy to acknowledge they exist. No one would say just because black and uh, just because there are shades of gray, there's no such thing as black and white. And that's what I don't understand about our society and about other people. No one has conviction anymore because we've all been told the wisest thing is to throw it away. Silence. It's better to have the dreary moaning or complete silence, but never something concerning value. There should never be a distinctive sound. There should never be a the clap of thunder or the roar of war or an engine. There should never be the scream of an infant child, the crying for milk. There should never be the tears of a weeping widow. No. Rather, we should all be smiling silently, listening to the same dreary gray static. It's almost worse than silence, though barely any. Ultimately, that's what people want us to do. They want us to silence ourselves. That's what we do in society. We make compromises and silence certain things, certain voices, certain opinions. Certain actions are silent, made silent, so that the dull, gray, throbbing background noise of life may continue grinding on. There's beauty in that, though, in a sense. But there's only beauty when colors mold together to make a painting. Shades of gray? Utterly worthless. Utterly worthless to a man like me. Black and white provide contrast. At least then there's distinction. Gray, what distinction can there be? None. It's imperceptible. You can't make judgments on a single color of gray. Especially when it's mixed together with other lighter and lower shades. You can't make judgments, and that's why it's popular today. Because people would like to remove from themselves the difficult work of making judgments. Judgments are bad. The word judgment itself is seen as a bad thing. Don't judge me, cries the guilty man. Okay, I won't, cries the lazy man. What about me, cries the victim. It's disgusting. It's weak. And it's tragic. But we live in a society... <laughs> The old meme, we live in a society. But it's true, we live in a society in which it is better to lack conviction and eat dust than acknowledge ripe fruit exists. We would all rather eat the silent dust than hear the crunch of an apple because acknowledging the color red would be too controversial for those who prefer blue. The reason we created this whole shades of gray analogy is so that everyone could have their own favorite shade not have to interfere with any other. And it's all really the same. But then we wouldn't be acknowledging diversity. And it's funny, as much as we push diversity, as soon as it becomes inconvenient for us, well, we say it's all shades of the gray. It's all the same anyway. Tell me something. Is diversity our strength? Or is it a weakness? You know, it's funny. Diversity, it sounds very similar to division. Because you cannot be diverse and be homogenous at the same time. You cannot have completely different ways of life, culture, art, 
and satisfaction. And yet at the same time, have the exact same values and work homogeneously together for a perfect society. You can't. You can make compromises. You can ignore certain things. But you can never truly have both colors be the same and different at the same time. It's double think. And that's what they're really trying to push right now, it feels. It feels like our whole civilization is pushing this. This idea that black and white don't exist. It's only shades of gray. But at the same time, it's beautiful to have many different shades of gray. As long as they're the same. See how ridiculous that is? Some would say it's a straw man, but I say it's an accurate representation of reality. Allow me to have my shade of gray, you critic. And to make a critique of me, by the way, shows that you believe in black and white. It's kind of, dare I say it, close-minded of you. <laughs> Why is it that in our society we see things and we hear things, and we aren't allowed to talk about it. I feel like generally there's this weak softening of language. Terms and ideas are really undefined. And what becomes acceptable and what's not is constantly shifting based on whoever is more offended at the moment. It doesn't really seem like a very fair way of defining things or talking about life. I mean, language is just a means to describe reality. It's a tool, like any other. And generally speaking, everyone can use it. Everyone has access to it. Everyone knows it in its own way. But there's this weak softening that I've often found irritating to me, where people will say something insulting and derogatory, but they mask it with flowery language so that they don't have to answer for it. What's with that? When did society become passive? Well, passive-aggressive. I prefer just aggressive, or just passive. Passive peace, or aggressive aggression. What is so difficult about expecting people to be honest and wear their intentions on their sleeves? Are they hoping to avoid a fight? Then why say something with such contempt? Well, the truth is, they aren't really trying to avoid a fight. Nowadays, it's not a competition of whether we avoid a fight. No, it's how long can I push the other person into snapping first? Then, when the inevitable fallout takes place, I can play the victim. You see how that worked? You see how easy that was? I believe that this new passive-aggressive system of language has been entirely designed by people who are too weak to win a straight-up fight. Instead, what they can do is claim a sort of moral high ground by pushing themselves in the most pretentious and eh, slovenly ways. Rather than doubling down on a position, or an idea, or saying something openly, they instead try to phrase it in a way that could be construed as neutral, or, while disrespectful, not so bad. This gives them the moral high ground, making the other person look like they overreacted. Now the unassailable virtue signaler is completely protected from critique, and those that were to tear him down from his throne of self-love and pride and ego, well, they're a brute, a savage, they should be taken care of. This general softening and weakness is breeding a bunch of cowards, inept fools, incapable of expressing themselves honestly, and we wonder why relationships aren't lasting that long. Which is another funny thing. Relationships. Like, 
relationships happen every day. And you never really know who's in one and who's not. It's a very general phrase. Because there are all sorts of things you can do. What are we, friends? What does being a friend mean? Does it mean I go over to your house? Does it mean I talk to you online? Does it mean that I even exist? What is a friend? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not someone who hits me up twice and decides to uh, <laughs> leave me whenever the gutting's good. That isn't a friend. Unless it is. Unless being a friend means it's no different than being an enemy. Unless being a friend is only a sort of means to an end. What if friendship is just transactional? If all relationships are transactional, then, well, what am I getting out of it? If you're not getting anything, well, then end the relationship. It seems very basic. But no one would come out and say that, otherwise you'd never have relationships. So instead what people do is they lie to themselves and uh, pretend nothing is wrong in order to keep whatever they're getting out of the relationship as long as possible. We do this all the time, romantically and with friendships. Platonically, if you will. I don't know why we use platonic. I'm ignorant on it, but I know it means friendship. Or at least I think it does. A romantic friendship. An aromantic relationship. I just made up that word, aromantic. I bet you guys accepted it. If it's a real word, let me know. In any case, when I think about these platonic relationships, these, these friendships without sexual consequences, or connotations or strings attached, do they really even exist? I mean, why do we end up being friends with people? Is it because they're funny? Is that why we're friends? Because they entertain us? Is that all we get out of them, entertainment? That seems rather selfish. What's the difference between them and, say, the TV or a video game? You're kind of just objectifying them. But wait, 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 you say. I enjoy giving to them. I enjoy spending time with them. Well, why? Well, it makes me feel valuable. It makes me feel wanted. Well, you're only doing that for self-validation. Is that not transactional love? Well... No, it's not. Of course not, they would say. It's not for my own benefit. I just enjoy spending time with them. Well, it's for your own enjoyment, then. And if you didn't enjoy spending time with someone, well, you wouldn't be friends with them. So is it not transactional? Are relationships not transactional? I needn't tell you this, but we have a slight divorce problem in this country. It's mostly because, well, you know, people get into miserable relationships and forget that they offered transactions. We talk about unconditional love, but... Human love generally comes with conditions, transactions. It's not the divine love of a god, which even in itself arguably has transactions and relations to it. But in any case, humans are not like the god, or at least not like the gods of old, <laughs> these divine, impersonal, perfect beings. No, humans are their own gods, and they have their own transactions on love. They have their own sacrificial systems, their own means of getting favor, their own means of acquiring new and different forms of love. For instance, men often have an ancient ritual in which they approach a female for love. The first thing you do is you offer a compliment, praising the female on her looks, usually something to do with her face. Though, if you're feeling particularly bold, you can compliment her dress or style, or even her body. This is generally seen as a lower class thing. You don't want to just compliment a woman based on her body. That's sexualizing her too much. That's objectifying her. Now, we're forgetting that the whole point of a compliment when it has to do with looks is that it is kind of to objectify her or to objectify anyone. 
when a woman compliments a man on his voice, on his intelligence, in a sense, she's recognizing that he's able to provide something that most people can't. There's something unique about him. There's something, generally, that interests them. That is of note. That is worthy. And that's another thing. Note and worthiness. The need for objectional, inauthentic desire. It's weird. It's artificial. It's artificially created. We can't just have natural lust anymore. No, we have to have some deeper artificial creation or rationale for everything. Which is really throwing me off. I thought part of a relationship was falling in love and then learning about each other afterwards. But no, now it seems we'll just artificially create something. Some guise under which we can go. We'll call it objective love, but in reality it will be the same as every other love and we're just fooling ourselves. And of course, <coughs> when we have disagreements, we'll just be passive-aggressive with one another. Never really solving the problem. I see this a lot. Now, what do I know? I'm just a dork talking on a podcast. Even now I'm taking another cough drop because I refuse to deal with my sickness properly. But you get the vibe. Here's another thing I don't get. I don't understand why people trust money. What does money get its value from? What makes that guy's face any more valuable than mine? Why can't I print my own face on money and exchange it for currency? After all, we're just pretending it has value. I know it's not based on gold anymore. God knows there's not enough gold to support this economy. So what is it based on? Trusting our government? I'll tell you what, that's eroding every day. If I were an American, which I am, I would be rather worried about our current economy and the state of things. I mean, don't you realize that at any moment, that paper could be worth nothing? Just some food for thought. And we're talking about things that are worthless and worth nothing. I don't understand the purpose of those phones. You know, the ones that you can tap each other and exchange pictures. Why would I do that physically when I could just send you a text message later? I don't understand that. I know it was a big trend. Did anyone remember it? Where you could just walk by someone and take phones? I feel like it's a really easy way to steal data. If they can do that, why couldn't they exchange other things? Even without consent. It's an odd thing. Altogether. And another worthless thing. Okay, does anyone else think that like, you know, perhaps, and it might just be me, but the entire idea of a slim suit that only fits one body type in a V-shape is useless? I feel it's kind of a forced thing. It's a way to make men look more feminine while making them look smooth and masculine. I don't know. I feel like V is an effeminate shape. It's an effeminate letter. Of course, I'm round as an apple. But at least you can eat an apple. What can you do with a V? Versace? Very? Vivian? Ugh, Aunt Vivian. That old bag. She annoys me. I don't know. I mean, this seems random, but while we're talking about things that might be worthwhile, have you ever thought about the aglet? You know, the tip thing on your shoelace. How crucial that is? One time I stepped on an aglet and broke it, and I was unable to tie my shoes for a week. It was unfortunate. Of course, I wasn't able to tie my shoes for that year. I was in, I think, kindergarten. But the point still stuck. They wouldn't stay tied, even when I got Miss Credenbacher to go ahead and do it for me. That was rough. 
From that day on, I got strapped shoes. Till I was about third grade. Then I learned to tie my shoes. And always a double knot. But the aglet was crucial to that. And I appreciated the aglet more and more the older I got. What a useful invention. Not like some other things. What are some other useful inventions? Have you ever thought about the guy who must have invented the pizza pan? That dude must have spent so much time figuring out how to flatten that dough and make sure it didn't roast. Could you imagine how many <laughs> hot things he burned his hands on? How many coals must have been wasted? How many delicious pizzas must have been ruined before they completed the first one and figured it out the first time? Could you imagine the first person who ever decided to use that poison dart frog venom? You know, in the Amazon, with all those tribals. How many guys had to die before they used this weapon effectively on their prey? And by the way, what makes you think it'd be worth it? Wouldn't it be easier just to club something to death? I don't know. But it feels like it would have been a lot of work to watch multiple people die just to get some poison. That really is unnecessary for the work of hunting. It's just kind of like the extra pizzazz a man might add. Like a pot square on a suit. It's nice. It looks cool. It has its value. It has its place. But... It's not necessary to look good. I don't know. I'm not an Amazonian and I'm not a millionaire. I don't invent suits or anything of value. I just speak. Here's another thing I'm worried about. Why is it that when we use tie clips, some of them are only take up half the tie? I want a whole clip. If it only takes up half the tie when I clip it, it's not worth my time. I want a whole tie clip. I want one that covers the whole tie. Keeps it even. Makes me feel secure. You know, like my underwear. I want it to cradle everything I need. You know, in a certain sense. I like the evenness. The stability. I think that's why I always go with Hanes. <laughs> it's easier that way. I don't know. These random thoughts are kind of tiring me out. When I think about, you know, life and inventions and words and reality, it makes me go to a lot of weird places. Look, awkward silence. Right there. Uncomfortable. Unuseful. Validless. I've often thought that when I rant to myself, it's less effective than an argument with someone else. And I think this is true. Language wasn't meant to be enjoyed in a vacuum. It wasn't meant to be passive. Language is in itself an act of will, used to assert something in reality. I think that's what they meant in the Bible, when it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word is power. Words have power. Whenever a human being uses language to describe reality, he's echoing his creator. At least, that's my idea. That's what they had in mind. God set the entire universe into motion with, let there be light. He said it, and there was light. Humans, for the rest of all eternity, have been echoing that statement by describing everything God created with words. God said the first word, he's the Logos, he's the living word, and we use other words to describe the living word. Word's just a tool, like I said, to describe a fundamental reality. And the fundamental reality is provided by a creator, who created the first word. It's an interesting quirk of philosophy. I don't know, has anyone else noticed this? I certainly didn't until a few months ago. It's kind of been addling in my brain. Have you ever thought about how people use lies? Lies is the opposite of what language was used for. 
Wiser in a sense of perversion. I mean, if God is the word and word is used to describe reality, then lies are the antithesis to that. And if words were used to create the universe, then words that are not true would be used to destroy it. And it kind of makes sense in the context of garden, where a deception or a cover-up of the truth or a twisting of the truth is used as a means to cause the ultimate downfall of man. Sin. Hmm. To fall short. It might be better to say that sin obscures. It obscures reality. Sin is a twisted sense of self. This idea that lying, the opposite, is one of the worst sins one could commit. I believe it's probably the worst because when you lie, you're using a tool given by God to the worst possible end. I think lying can lead to every other sin. Of course, so could murder and adultery, and many of the other commandments that are offered. But I think lying holds a special place, since it was the first great sin, the first great lie ever told. Not just by man, but by that old serpent. You know, him? What was going through that hit guy's head? I don't understand. Seems rather ignorant, but allow me to project myself. What could make you think that by telling a lie... An untruth that does not describe reality. You could create a new one. It's interesting, but it seems by saying the opposite. By telling something that couldn't affect reality, you in fact made a new one. You only had to mention the possibility and not include the defects. You only had to be dishonest to create a new truth or a new reality. This kind of dispersion, it's a bit like shadow puppets. You don't get rid of light or the source of light. You merely block some of it out so that you can create a picture of your own. I think this is what humans have been doing for at least a few thousand years. They've been using language as a means of, well, kind of blocking out light. It used to be language was just a tool to funnel truth, to project it, right? It was a prism through which truth could flow. And we were always trying to get a perfect, clear picture of the light or of truth. Now I think people prefer to have their own shadow projected onto truth. A cookie cutter. People prefer the shadow puppets to the cave, to the sun outside. That's kind of a platonic idea. Platonic. Plato. Plato and Aristotle. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. All three of them were pretty much obsessed with truth. Or at least so it seems to me. Some sort of objective, real truth. Rationally speaking. Though... A lot of rationalists would tell you there's no such thing as truth, which itself is an admission of truth. I mean, what is truth? Truth is a word we use to say that there's a fundamental reality by which we all live. Some people are beholden to this and some aren't. But then, is that really truth? Is truth truth if it's not true? It seems like a stupid question, but think about it. Like, is my blue your blue? Is my sky your sky? Is what I see preserve and protect what you see preserve and protect? If we're at odds with one another and we both believe we're white, who's right? And by the way, if there's someone greater than us who tells us what's right, how do we know he's right? And how do we know he's greater? All these weird questions must have gone through Adam and Eve's head, at least subconsciously or consciously, before they ate of that fruit. But that's another great deception. When they ate of that fruit, they were told they would be knowledge, like God. 
Maybe they thought all those questions would be answered if they started knowing about what it means to be good and evil. Because how can you know good without the knowledge of evil? Maybe they thought it would widen their perspective and give them wisdom and answer to these questions. And that was part of the temptation. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I like to think when it's phrased like this, a lot of people, well, a lot of people would have done the same thing. Often I've thought as a child how stupid of them, how could they betray God? But as an adult, I realize how easy it is. How easy it is to distort truth. Even today, the other, I ran a red light, and I told myself that it was yellow when it ran. And yet, I know that it wasn't. It wasn't yellow when I ran through the red light. It was yellow as I approached the red light, but I didn't want to admit that it changed midway through the lane. It's unfortunate, but people do little lies to distort reality all the time because it's more convenient for our view. I have a feeling that's exactly what the devil was doing when he told those lies. He is the father of lies, after all. And the first great lie was to distort the truth, with a half-truth, with a twisting of truth. Did it make Adam and Eve like God? No. In fact, it didn't really give them knowledge, it gave them confusion. Complete confusion. Because now, rather than just simply letting good be good, undistorted, complete light, absorbing into them and living them and letting that be their reality... They allowed the distortion of darkness and the idea of darkness to trample on them. They actually chose to have a limitation on truth rather than ob observing a new one, a more fundamental one. Disobedience. Disobedience. Falling short. Failing. All these things, they come from a fundamental lack of truth. I think that's one of the reasons that truth in the spoken word is so important. I think it's one of the reasons telling lies is such a tragedy and should be hated. I think it's one of the reasons keeping oaths is so looked down on today. No one wants to keep their word because we're so accustomed to lies that to give your word is almost petty. It's almost weak. And by the way, if you swear something, it's dangerous because it's a claim to truth. And that makes us uncomfortable. And most people can't keep their claims. Most people can't claim truth. And claiming anyone's truth, subjective to anyone else's truth, could be offensive. So let's rather not do it. It's strange. It's strange, even from a biblical perspective, to think of truth as anything separate from God. God becomes a very useful and valuable part of a person's life, especially when he's obsessed with truth. Anything outside of that truth, well, it's wrong. It's false. And people say this is closed-minded, but I think it's even more closed-minded to say they're all right or that everything is wrong. I think it's better to cling to at least a single color than it would be to cling to the whole painting and be unable to see it. What's the point of being blind? You have an infinite? It's a simply like saying, I'm blind and so therefore I have infinite sight because I can see everything. Right? And because I can see nothing. There's no differentiation between anything, so how enlightened am I? But I tell you this, if I could see everything in the color red, for seeing, every, seeing nothing, I would choose the color red. It's far more useful than seeing only darkness. That's my problem, though. That's the problem with humanity. A lot of us are only satisfied with seeing darkness, or, <clears throat> and only a step above, are okay with seeing everything in their color. 
I don't think there's anyone who could see a clear picture of anything. I think people are simply too embroiled in their own ego and arrogance, lying to themselves too constantly to really embrace truth. I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. After all, it's all from my perspective, and right now, everyone looks guilty and red. Hey guys, thanks for joining me on the podcast and everything, and it's a little short this week. This is just a short, sickly podcast. Hopefully we can do another uh, very soon, maybe even two this week. Well, this was just kind of the sickly podcast, uh, a means of me sharing some of my thoughts and getting them out there. I was just so eager to go ahead and speak, let another one out. As you can hear, this train in the background, I'm tired. It's almost 10 o'clock at night. I'm miserable, and so you'll have to forgive me for not doing any more content. I'd just like to say that uh, I'm grateful for everyone who listens. It's really fun to just be able to record myself, put it out there, and see what people do with it. I hope everyone's entertained. Um, If you're not, well, don't listen. You are. Come again. (laughs) I know only two or three people listened last week, but I hope this week is a little more popular. I hope these off-the-cuff rants and ravings, well, I hope they come to you and are enjoyable. I think I gotta get a co-host soon, though, because honestly, I feel like I do better when I'm talking to someone else. I hope it's okay. I think, uh, I think I might have to go ahead and compromise, bring some friends on. I don't know who. Certainly no boneheads. But, in any case, I hope that there's some growth that comes from this. I'm reading a lot of books, and I hope next week to talk about a few things. I noticed last week I wanted to talk about mythology, and that is one of my interests, but I like the mythologized view of the world. I feel like guys like Jordan Peterson do a pretty good job of it. I'd like to get my own take on it, though. Personally, I find that things are a little bit uncomfortable in day-to-day life without a little bit of mythologizing to it. Without a little bit of passion, without a little bit of soul. It's far more interesting to think that Mythical creatures are making our lives difficult, not simply circumstances beyond our control. I mean, both are circumstances beyond our control, but one has a little bit more soul and personality, and the other is just the world doing what it does, destroying our souls. Destroying mankind. Destroying itself. Total and complete apathy. Total and complete ridiculousness. Absurdity. It's kind of depressing. But, at the same time, it's almost liberating. Nihilism. Mmm, tasty, tasty nihilism. Draining all over me. I'm not a nihilist. I believe in things. I have values. I have purpose. These are things I tell myself to comfort me before I go to bed. But hopefully things get better. I'm hoping to release another podcast soon, but I'm glad you could join me for the sickly one. My sniffing and coughing and sneezing hopefully didn't bother you too much, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd ever like to be on the podcast or join me for a rant or entertain me, uh, I'd love to do it. If you have a business or anything local in Fredericksburg or in any area of Virginia, I'd be glad to have you on. I think it would be fun. Um, I can't wait to have Doug on next week, and I can't wait to share him with you. If you want, you can go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Virginia Company Podcast. Uh, I've been your host, John Smith. I hope you have a good night. Bye.